0: Welcome to the Post-Brexit Europe podcast, which is a product of the Bridge-Jean Monnet Network. What follows is a recording from the 7th Bridge Network Conference, which took place on October 11th and 12th, hosted by the DCU Brexit Institute. This episode is a panel discussion featuring four PhD students, Victor Kazai of Central European University, Niels Kirst of DCU, Beatrice Montescaita of DCU, and Jenny Pulicino-Orlando of the University of Copenhagen. It's chaired by Federico Fabrini and introduced by Ken McDonough, who's the Head of School of Law and Government at DCU.
1: It's one of the curses of being a Head of School is that you get to to start and open and welcome everyone to these wonderful events, but then you have to go off somewhere else and you don't get to hear uh, what looks like a very interesting day of papers and two half days of papers. Um, it would be great to be welcome you all um, in person to DCU uh, to offer you some hospitality around that. Unfortunately, we're still in, unlike Denmark, as we found out, uh, still in a sort of trans- trans- transitional phase, at least for planning these kind of things. Um, so you're very welcome to this, this Is the sixth meeting, I understand, uh, of, of, of the Bridge Network. Um, we're, we're very proud to be, you know, the coordinating institution here and of the work that Professor Fabrini has done in pulling together such excellent partners in the University of Copenhagen. University of Bologna, and Bolzano and of course Central European University. Um, it's great also, as Federico mentioned in our discussions before this, to see that linking between more senior and established academics and opportunities for, for PhD candidates and early career researchers. Um, and that's a core part of, of what these networks are all about. Um, I wish you the very best for your discussions over the next day or two. And I understand there may even be a special issue um, emerging from some of these discussions as well. Um, so it's just in, for, for me to say a, a very warm welcome virtually to DCU. We hope to welcome you in person soon uh, and all the very best with your event. So Federico
2: And thanks a lot, Ken, for, uh, for accepting to speak so early. Uh, I know it's, uh, it's, it's for everybody, it's 8, it's 8 a.m. in Dublin. So that's, that's really a early bird start uh, for our event, but we had to cater for an audience. Uh, across different time zones uh, in Europe, but I'm I'm really grateful you could be with us and and, uh, kick off uh, our Jean Monnet Bridge Conference on Differentiated Governance in Post-Crisis EU. Uh, This is the third uh, network conference we are hosting at DCU uh, after the kickoff uh, in 2019. And then we had another online event uh, last year. And I'm also particularly proud that today's event is entirely focused on on presentation by uh, PhD researchers. What what we call it in the program a PhD bridge uh, bridge PhD day, uh, I think on the one hand uh, this reflects the importance uh, we we have been putting and we are putting at DCU uh, in the selection and training uh, of uh, PhD candidates, so as to make our program ever more attractive to uh, to international students. Uh, indeed, a strong PhD program uh, is the bellwether of the academic reputation of a university, a faculty, uh, or a department, and this is particularly key for uh, for an area like law, uh, which is emerging but, but growing fast uh, here at DCU. Uh, on the other end, at the same time, today event also confirms and demonstrates uh, the need for a larger network uh, in which law PhD candidates can uh, engage and grow. Uh, and this is precisely uh, one of the many missions uh, of the Bridge Project. Uh, the Jean Monnet network that I have the honor uh, to lead has organized, uh, I think now this is the seventh uh, event uh, across Europe, including some at the European Central Bank and the European Parliament. Uh, We are producing high level uh, research in the forms of blogs, uh, working papers and and special issues. We've delivered cutting edge technological output like a MOOC and an interactive map, uh, which we're going to launch later today. But I think one of our greatest achievements, perhaps has been also to nurture a cohort uh, of emerging scholars working on Brexit, uh, the rule of law crisis, the Euro crisis, and, uh, and, migration, and migration crisis. So it is, it is great, a great pleasure for me to chair uh, this panel, which uh, essentially focuses on the rule of law crisis and the timing could hardly be better uh, in many ways, as we were discussing before the kickoff, given uh, recent developments in, in Poland and the EU just, uh, just over the weekend. Uh, and the the speakers uh, include two of my uh, current uh, PhD supervisees at DCU uh, with two other speakers from two of our uh, bridge uh, partners uh, institutions. So let me uh, quickly introduce uh, in alphabetical order uh, by uh, last name. Uh, first, Victor uh, Kazai, uh, who is a PhD candidate uh, at Central European University uh, in Budapest. Uh, he has a degree from uh, Elte and also a master from Pantheon Assas uh, in France, and he works uh, on Hungary and the rule of law crisis. Uh, then the next speaker, we're going to follow that the same order of the program. So the next will be uh, Niels uh, Kirst, uh, who has a degree uh, from Heidelberg and then from uh, also Neme from uh, Pantheon Assas in, in France. He recently won a Konrad Adenauer Adenauer Stiftung Fellowship, uh, which will also allow him to visit the United States uh, next year. And he has already published uh, quite widely on issues related uh, to the rule of law, including for the uh, Trinity Law Review uh, and the Nordic Journal of uh, European Law. Then the third speaker will be Beatrice monchus who's also a PhD student uh, with me uh, at DCU. Uh, She has a degree from uh, DCU and then an LLM from Trinity College. Uh, She is also the recipient of the uh, IRC uh, uh, Postgraduate uh, Fellowship. And she recently won uh, the Fulbright uh, Fellowship, uh, which will allow her to uh, visit NYU uh, in the first semester of, uh, well, in in the spring semester of, uh, of next year. And then finally, the last, definitely last but not least, last speaker of this panel is Jenny uh, uh, Policino-Orlando. I believe she has degree from uh, LSE. Uh, She's originally from uh, Malta and has also an experience uh, as a diplomat for Malta in the EU institutions and other diplomatic representation. And currently uh, she is a PhD candidate at Copenhagen uh, University uh, within i uh, working with uh, Jan Komarik in his uh, ERC project, uh, Imagine. and I am very pleased that you are also with us, Jenny. Because as uh, as many people know, I used to be an associate professor at at, at Copenhagen in, in that role. So uh, it is it is really a nice uh, segue and connection uh, that is playing out there. So listen, this was meant simply to uh, get the panel running. Uh, you already know the terms of engagement. Uh, each of you will have maximum 15 minutes for uh, presentation. Uh, I'll try to uh, limit myself to sort of controlling the time and I'll pre-warn you uh, if uh, if your time is uh, is running up. And then after each of you has uh, presented, uh, we will have hopefully roughly 30 minutes for, uh, for what I'm sure is going to be a, a very stimulating and engaging conversation. Uh, so uh, without further ado, I'll stop here and hand straight to Victor, uh, who's going to be the first presenter. So thanks, Victor, the floor is yours.
3: Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Um, Thank you for this opportunity. I'm really honored to be part of this this, uh, panel. My presentation is entitled The Misuse of the Legislative Process as Part of the Hungarian Illiberal Toolkit, which is largely based on the article that I published in the Theory and Practice of, of Legislation. So to give you some some context, um, as you all know, probably the Fidesz government in Hungary uh, ever since the 2010 elections had a two thirds constitutional majority in the National Assembly. Now we have a unicameral National Assembly, so we have only one chamber. Uh, We are a unitary state, so we have no member states and we have very weak local governments which means that political and legislative power ever since 2010 has been very, very centralized. So it would be logical to assume that in such political circumstances, uh, the governing majority has no problem with implementing its political program in the form of statutory law. The reality is, however, is that the governing majority has often violated the formal requirements of the rule of law in order to pass very controversial legislative measures as quickly as possible in the face of every opposition. Now, what kind of violations do I, do I talk about? So for example, um, the Hungarian legal order is full of ad hominem legislation. Just to give you an example, the, the Lex Central European University which you probably know made the continuous operation of of CEU in Hungary impossible. The primary problem was not from a rule of law perspective. The primary problem was not that the law violated some uh, provisions of the WTO agreement. The problem from a rule of law perspective or one of the most serious problems from a rule of law perspective is that this targeted Central European University only. so this this constituted a clear example of ad hominem legislation, which violates the, prin- the, the principle of generality, which violates uh, the rule of law uh, requirements or another very um, common problem in Hungary is the lack of predictability. So we are Monday morning, but I can tell you that I, I cannot <clears throat> uh, I cannot be sure what kind of legislative acts will be adopted by the National Assembly by the end of this week. So, for example, the anti-LGBT legislation, uh, which was a big scandal a few months ago, from a rule of law perspective, the, the only problem is not that it, it violates the, the uh, rights of the LGBT community. The rule of law problem is that nobody could predict this kind of legislative measure, and it was enacted in parliament in a matter of a few days. So there is completely a lack of predictability in Hungary. Um, I recently wrote an article with Petra Bard in which we analyzed several rule-of-law-related infringement mechanisms in the European Union. And we we argued that there are many cases in which uh, the Court of Justice and the European Commission successfully detected rule-of-law-related problems and addressed them. But in many cases, these formal violations of the rule of law were simply disregarded or ignored. And we also argued that there are many cases which fly under the radar of the EU rule of law mechanisms or they are not uh, framed as a rule of law problem simply because the EU rule of law mechanisms disregard the the formal uh, requirements of the rule of law so in my presentation I will focus on a much narrower topic and I will talk to you only about the legislative process those problems that arise when the government violates the rules of the legislative process. Uh, and I argue that the EU rule of law mechanisms do not pay enough attention to these kinds of problems. And I brought you one very specific example to illustrate the gravity or the seriousness of this, this kind of problems. Uh, and this example is the reform of the administrative judiciary. So ever since 2010, Fides attempted to undermine judicial independence, And their original plan was built on two pillars, basically. The first one was that they attempted to pack the courts with new judges, loyal people, and especially they wanted to place loyal judges in top positions, so court leaders, court presidents. The other pillar was that they reorganized and in practice they weakened the the system of judicial self-governance. In 2016, they realized that these attempts had limited success. So they came up with the idea of reforming the administrative judiciary. Now, why the administrative judiciary? Because arguably administrative law cases are the most political salient or most politically sensitive cases. Uh, In 2016, the Fidesz government um, wanted to amend the act on the judiciary Uh, in order to reorganize the administrative court system. The problem was that the Act on the Judiciary is a so-called Qualified Majority Act, which means that the most important provisions of this Act can only be amended and adopted by two-thirds parliamentary majority. Now, in 2016, the Fidesz government temporarily didn't have a two-thirds majority in the National Assembly. So what they did is that they tried to amend seemingly minor, uh, those provisions of the Act which had seemingly minor importance, uh, which would have uh, required only a simple majority. But what they did is that they re-regulated a little bit the competence of the jurisdiction of the Budapest Metropolitan Court of Appeal. But in fact, what they wanted to do is to establish a separate administrative Supreme Court. Uh, Now this this law was challenged at the uh, the Constitutional Court and even, our constitutional court, which is arguably very packed by the Fidesz government, even that court said that, no, you cannot do that. This is a very important um, element of the acts on the judiciary. So you cannot amend this act without a two thirds majority. So consequently, this legislation was uh, uh, annulled on a procedural basis because of the lack of two thirds majority. But this is not the end of the story because in 2018, after the elections, the Fidesz government returned to power with two-thirds parliamentary majority. And in this case, they they wanted to establish a separate administrative court, even a a formally separate administrative uh, Supreme Court. Um, Now, despite its two-thirds majority in the parliament, again, the Fidesz government uh, had recourse to several procedural irregularities. For example, this administrative uh, reform was part of an omnibus legislation, so lawyers had absolutely no idea that this was coming. Journalists detected that there was an omnibus legislation tabled on the agenda of the parliament, and they found that several uh, provisions of this omnibus legislation actually wanted to establish a separate uh, administrative Supreme Court. There was no preliminary consultation with, uh, with the uh, representatives of the judiciary, with state institutions, with civil society orga- organizations, with scholars, nobody. There was no impact assessment attached to the bill, and the, the, the bill was adopted in a chaotic legislative process because the parliamentary opposition wanted to obstruct the legislative process, but the governing majority decided to, to proceed to the vote anyway, uh, which resulted in a process full of procedural irregularities and a very, very undignified uh, procedure. Now, this law was also challenged at the Constitutional Court, but the Constitutional Court dismissed the arguments of the petitioners. Um, so this, as you know, this is not the, the end of the, the story concerning the judicial independence, but this is where the example ball ends. And um, as as this example shows us, us very well uh, that, Despite the two-thirds majority in the National Assembly, the Hungarian government very often violates the, the former requirements of the rule of law, especially the procedural requirements of the rule of law to pass very controversial legislative measures. Now, my, the aim of my article was to show that the, the EU rule of law mechanisms, they fail to detect these problems, they fail to understand the gravity of this problem uh, because in all, all, all the rule of law reports uh, you can find references to to the violation of the legislative process. sometimes the commission uh, uh, refers to the lack of preliminary consultations sometimes the Hungarians government uh, the Hungarian government is criticized for frequent changes in the law uh, but but they fail to capture the gravity of this of this problem. so that's why I basically analyzed the case law of the Hungarian Constitutional Court, because in Hungary you can litigate cases on procedural basis as well. So you can argue at the Constitutional Court that the specific uh, legislation is unconstitutional, is invalid, not not only because the substance of the law is contrary to the Constitution, but also because the procedure itself was unconstitutional. So basically I identified 16, Different types of procedural irregularities. The most typical ones are first the lack of preliminary consultation. So there is a very clear statutory obligation of the government to consult the representatives of state institutions, the representatives of civil society, institu- uh, civil society organizations, scholars, and so on before uh, the introduction of a, of a legislative proposal in parliament. But they very, very often. Uh, violate this, this statutory prin- uh, principle, this statutory requirement. The other one is the lack of, of impact assessment. There are, you cannot find the impact assessment, if there is any, even when it comes to the, the most uh, serious uh, legislative reforms. You have absolutely no idea what triggered the government other than political motives, what justified the introduction of, of even the most uh, serious legislative reforms. It is also very common in the Hungarian parliament that legislative reforms, which were clearly prepared by the, by the government, they are introduced in parliament as private member bills. So they are introduced by members of the governing, of, uh, the governing majority, but not by the government itself, which means that all the statutory requirements um, that, that, the, uh, governing, that the government has to comply with Uh, according to the law, uh, in these cases, when when a legislative proposal is submitted by a member of parliament, those requirements do not apply, and even amendments to the constitution were very often uh, submitted in parliament by individual members and not by the government uh, itself. It is also very common in the Hungarian parliament that the government introduces a bill it lets the opposition and lets the media and lets the scholars to criticize that particular bill. And in the very last moment, right before the final vote uh, on the bill, they completely revise the, the original bill uh, with the legislative amendments. So the final version of the bill have nothing, has nothing to do with the original version of the bill. Um, it, unfortunately, it's also a very common phenomenon that the governing majority uses accelerated procedures to pass legislative acts without any good justification. We have absolutely no idea why certain legislative acts needed to be uh, adopted in an accelerated, urgent procedure. There is no good justification for that. And what we could witness in 2000, between 2015 and 2018, this was the period when uh, Due to some by-elections, the governing majority had no qualified or two-thirds majority in parliament. In this period, they very often amended qualified majority acts without a qualified majority, so simple majority. Uh, so I think that, and and I will not talk about all the sixteen types of procedural irregularities. I mentioned only the most important ones. But the message, the essence of 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 this whole argument, is that. Despite its having a qualified majority, the Fidesz government very often has recourse to procedural irregularities to adopt very controversial legislative measures. And in order to understand the logic of the Hungarian illiberal regime, we simply cannot disregard these procedural irregularities because these procedural irregularities are just as much part of the logic of the system as the substantive violations of the rule of law. And if we disregard it, we simply cannot understand the logic of the of the system. And with this, I conclude, and I hope I respected the time limit.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Victor. You did great. I think you had even 1 minute and 30 seconds left. But uh, I'm sure we can reuse that, recycle that in the, in the Q&A later on, because your argument is very interesting. A lot of the focus. Uh, in in scholarly analysis about the rule of law crisis in Hungary, has been obviously on substantive issues, but uh, I think you've you've done something very helpful to shed light on, on the formal procedural challenges to the rule of law that the legislative process in in Hungary has has brought to light. Uh, okay, so I propose we move straight on to the next speak, speaker, which is uh, Niels. Niels, again, you'll have fifteen minutes uh, to jump in uh, and uh, and present. Uh, your own take on the matter. So the floor is yours.
4: Great. Thank thank you so much, Federico. Thank you first of all for organizing uh, this conference and giving um, us the chance to present our ongoing research. Uh, I just want to check. Can you um, see my screen now?
2: Yes, but if you click on slideshow, there you go. Perfect. Now we see you, it better. Great.
4: Okay. And you see you see the audience view and not the presenters view, <laughs> because sometimes that's weird. okay. Perfect. Yeah, so um, in my presentation, I want to, so I'm writing my PhD thesis under supervision of Professor Federico Fabrini on the rule of law crisis in Europe. And one part of my thesis is that I I want to conduct a comparative research to compare how the EU deals with the rule of law crisis. And if there are other similar uh, federal legal systems who also have dealt with the rule of law crisis or are even currently dealing with some kind of a rule of law crisis, in subordinate states and um, therefore I'm uh, now in the coming year I want to compare uh, the rule of law crisis in the EU to potentially uh, the rule of law crisis in the US or earlier instances of uh, rule of law crises in the United States Um, so um, in my very uh, brief conversation I will um, give an introduction talk about the rule of law in the EU um, yeah talk about the instruments and um, then i want to focus um, rather on uh, current uh, rule of law instances in the us and see if there is a way to compare these to the current situation in the eu so what is the rule of law in the eu about i can i think i can be rather brief on this because uh, you are all very well acquainted with it so it's written in article two there's the liver case in which the court affirmed the rule of law it's also a general principle and it's a criteria for prospective member states to join the eu and the establishing the copenhagen criteria after the copenhagen council summit it's actually also uh, one of the pr- guiding principles of the eu's external policy uh, qua article 21 t u and um, i would say that the eu rule of law is rather substantial um, and not, re- not merely a procedural notion. So the rule of law in the EU also encompasses um, fundamental rights. Um, what is the democratic backsliding in Central and Eastern Europe about? So um, I think there are even people in, in our audience who know much more about this than I do. But just as a very uh, quick recap, uh, we have the case of Hungary, where um, yeah, the Fidesz party had a landslide victory in 2010, adopted a new constitution in 2011 and um, I, maybe also uh, we will hear uh, later more about this and um, since then um, the Fidesz government kind of implemented their yeah, semi-autocratic agenda and uh, we can see uh, democratic decay in Hungary and um, by yeah, changing um, the composition of the judiciary but also in many other areas attacking fundamental rights or uh, rights of minority groups and then we have also the case of poland where the uh, law and justice party in 2015 uh, gained an election victory and since then or especially since 2017 the government proposed judicial reforms uh, to improve the efficiency of the justice system so they say um, but these were actually undermining the judicial independence as they as they changed, um, yeah, a large part of the judges elected and established a disciplinary chamber to yeah um punish judges who would not uh, rule um, to to their favor. So, um, from the EU view, what are the judicial tools? you You probably also know this. Um, there's the there are the infringement proceedings, according to Article two hundred and fifty. Eight TFU, then actually there's also the possibility for member states to bring an action uh, under Article 259, the TFU, with, but this, um, due to uh, diplomatic reasons, probably has not been used. Then there's also the possibility for penalty payments, which potentially could become more important uh, in the future now, as um, the Polish government seems not to back down to the rulings of uh, the Court of Justice in Luxembourg. And then, of course, a very important element is the Article 267 uh, preliminary ruling procedure, because um, yeah, this allows um, the Court of Justice to make sure that the body of EU law stays consistent. And a question that I'm asking in my research is, is the Court of Justice successful in addressing these challenges to the rule of law? And, and then, of course, the follow up question is also, what are the um, uh, tools on the political uh, level? So on the political level, we have the Article 7 uh, TU procedure, which is triggered against Poland uh, by the European Commission since 2017, and which was triggered against Hungary by the European Parliament in 2018. However, in both cases, uh, this procedure has not yield any substantial results. The process blocked due to the unanimity requirements in the Council. We have the rule of law framework, a soft law tool, um, which was only activated against Poland, but also had Um, actually no results, but rather was, um, yeah, like delaying the process of uh, the Article 7 procedure and was even used by those uh, countries to, yeah, endless uh, letter exchange. And then uh, the new tools are the rule of law dialogue, the rule of law report, and eventually the rule of law regulation. Um, Yeah, the rule of law report is a report drawn up by the commission, and the rule of law dialogues are is a peer review mechanism in the European Council. And so far, uh, we don't know if these tools will be effective, but it's definitely um, a second phase of the constitutionalization of the rule of law in the European Union. Just to talk very quickly also about the rule of law conditionality regulation, because I think it's, um, yes, continue to make headlines. Actually, just today, um, there is a full court hearing in Luxembourg on the rule of law uh, conditionality regulation because Hungary and Poland challenged this regulation um, in an action for annulment because they're claiming that this uh, regulation is or the legal basis of this regulation is uh, wrong and it's actually a circumventing mechanism uh, for the article 7 procedure so um, they are arguing we have the article 7 procedure we don't need another rule of law regulation because this is just a, a yeah ancillary tool which is kind of Um, undermining the legitimacy of the Article 7 Procedure. Uh, The rule of law regulation uh, was was a legislative proposal by the European Commission in 2018, then um, the Parliament adopted the position in 2019, and then actually with the uh, pandemic in Europe was also uh, gained momentum for the rule of law conditionality regulation and allowed finally um, that this regulation could be adopted in uh, December 2020 However, as you probably also know, the regulation has not been applied so far as the European Council in a protocol instructed the Commission to wait until the CGU's judgment uh, to come out. And now I think also the European Parliament is deliberating if they want to bring an action for uh, failure to act act against the European Commission because the European Commission is uh, apparently not acting as a guardian of the treaties. But now let's move to the probably rather interesting part of my presentation. And um, that's uh, very exploratory. So I'm happy to receive also more feedback on this. So I'm l- looking now at current rule of law backsliding tendencies in the US. And I think there are two instances which are probably very, um, which made headlines and which are interesting to look at. There's the Texas Heartbeat Act, and there's the Election Integrity Act in Georgia. So uh, the Texas Heartbeat Act um, creates um, a private enforcement um, mechanism to yeah, sue um, doctors or um, uh, women for, uh, for conducting an abortion. And um, it was signed into law by the Republican governor and um, actually eight days after the law went into effect, the United States Department of Justice filed a legal action um, against this act as it um, said that it was uh, unconstitutional and was actually against um, the landmark judgment in Roe versus Wade. And um, this was um, decisive action by the Department of Justice. The Election Integrity Act, on the other hand, in Georgia mandates, um, yeah, tightens the restrictions to voting actually in the state. Um, yeah, it mandates voter identification requirements, it reduces the f- amount of time people have to request an absentee ballot, and it makes it a crime for outside groups to give free food or water to voters waiting in line. And so, yeah, so it's it definitely make it harder to vote and um, establish a lot of restrictions, especially for marginalized groups. And also in June 2021, the Department of Justice announced that it would sue Georgia over the law on the basis that is racially discriminatory. Um, why is this interesting? Um, so in the case of Texas, which I want to focus on, um, the Texas Attorney General argued that um, the DOJ, by bringing this lawsuit, was actually meddling in the state's sovereign rights. So in Texas sovereign rights to so Texas, um, is um, entitled to uh, enact this legislation, and the federal legislator should not interfere with this. Then, actually, in August 2021, um, there was a lawsuit brought by the Center for Reproductive Rights, and the Supreme Court, in a preliminary motion, decided that they would not stop uh, this um, uh, state law to go into effect. This is, of course, very interesting, because you all uh, know that Um, the latest Supreme Court appointees have been conservative judges. So this uh, definitely has an impact on this vote, I would say. But the Supreme Court did not say whether the law is constitutional or unconstitutional. And then, however, following the DOJ's lawsuit, um, a district court judge issued issued, an order blocking the law. Um, And then, very interestingly, the Attorney General Merrick Garland said that uh, this was a Uh, Ruling is a victory for the rule of law and um, that it's the responsibility of the Department of Justice to defend the Constitution. We will continue to protect constitutional rights against all who seek to undermine them. However, as a very latest development on October 8th, the Court of Appeals put a stay on the uh, Federal District Court's order. So in the end, now the bill partly went into effect. But what I see in all this is that there are the similarities to the European Commission and pursuing kind of infringement proceedings against member states, as well as the responses or, yeah, let's say the narrative of those state officials are very similar and actually striking. So we can also see here a conflict um, about the rule of law between a federal legislator. uh, and in uh, state laws and especially we can see the focus on the role of the courts of the kind of federal courts uh, which they play in this um, in this uh, fight over the rule of law well so yeah now I have um, I, I will be rather brief on this but I um, I, I try to um, argue why I'm comparing those system systems so I, I think to just highlight the most important points uh, both systems adhere to the rule of law. Both uh, supreme courts ascertained this principle in Lebert and uh, in the U.S. in Marbury Marbury versus Madison. The U the U.S. actually has witnessed in the past past rule of law crisis um, that were addressed by the Supreme Court. For example, in Brown versus Board of Education, and um, there have been earlier studies or earlier comparisons between both legal systems on certain aspects. Um, also, um, yep. Yeah, uh, Professor Fabrini did this in regard to fundamental rights. Looked at uh, fundamental rights protection in federal systems, and, but of course there are still huge differences between both systems. Uh, foremost, the U uh, the U.S. is a union of states, whereas the U uh, sovereign states from a union. And um, therefore, I think it's going to be very interesting uh, what what I can also draw from from these differences. And the U is led, of course, by a very strong federal presidency, where the U is led by the Heads of the member state governments in the European Council, um, which methodology I want to use uh, in this research is yeah I want to analyze the role of the epic epic courts in the rule of law crisis in the subordinate states of federal legal systems. But, but I also want to look at the federal institutions, because you cannot look at the court in a vacuum, you also have to look how the court interacts with um, other institutions. And then especially I want to look at the general legal principles and the rule of law crisis, because we know that in the EU, the principle of constitutional identity plays a strong role. So um, Hungary and Poland would always argue that their constitutional identity might be affected. The principle of equality of states is interesting. Uh, The principle of sincere cooperation, um, the principle of effective judicial protection, as this is really the core of the uh jurisprudence is the European court of justice and um, yeah I want to see if I can find similar principles actually in the uh, in the jurisprudence of uh, the United States Supreme Court or yeah what, what are the differences in the legal principles used in in such a rule of law crisis. finally what are what is the added value of this research? So I think it's um, to study kind of best practices between two similar legal systems dealing with rule of law backsliding, analyze the enforcement element uh, into uh, similar legal systems, and um, also identify the underlying common principles across those legal systems. And um, yeah, I think it adds to the comparative research uh, on the ongoing discourse of global trends of rule of law backsliding, because we know this is not a European phenomenon; it's really a global phenomenon, and we have um, many other states in the world who currently face a rule of law backsliding in certain degrees. Um, yeah, and I, I would also argue that this research research matters. Um, as said, it contributes to the academic discourse on democratic decay. It contributes to the legal questions and challenges of the rule of law crisis in the EU. And it also finally contributes eventually to studies of federalism, constitutional design, and the role of general legal principles and federal legal orders. Um, Yeah, so just to wrap up, so the aim uh, for me in the coming year is to uh, comparatively study uh, the CGU and SCOTUS through the rule of law lens. Uh, However, those apex courts cannot be studied in a vacuum Therefore, in a second step, I also want to analyze the institutional dimension. And what are the I want to find out what are the similarities and differences in the rule of law backsliding. And maybe, is there something to learn uh, for the EU from early instances of rule of law backsliding in the US? And then finally, try to answer the question, how do quasi-federal epics courts um, deal with rule of law backsliding in subordinate states? What are the legal principles? the institutional responses, and uh, what is actually the constitutional design uh, of these systems. Yeah, so this is uh, just to give you a glimpse of um, what I'm trying to do. And I'm, as this is very preliminary, I'm very happy to receive uh, any comments and remarks. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks Ian, uh, thanks Niels, for this uh, presentation uh, and for uh, also outlining what what will be some of the future steps uh, in, uh, in in your research definitely i think a take home from from what you uh, you uh, just presented is that even in a mature federal system like the united states you still have challenges to the rule of law in uh, at the level of the state, subnational uh, uh, level of government. Uh, so this presumably is, is almost a constant feature of federal unions of, of states or whatever you want to call it. But, but we'll come back to this in the, in the Q&A later for sure. Let me move straight to uh, Beatrice now for uh, her own presentation also on the rule of law crisis. And I think, presume you'll be focusing on Lithuania and Latvia. So Beatrice, the floor is yours.
5: Thanks, Federico. Um, okay, so my slides. Um, can everyone see my slideshow?
2: Yes, and we can it see it if you, if you click on slide, show, that will make it easier for us to see. There you yeah.
5: go. Okay, great. Um, so first of all, thank you for um, having me to the Bridge Network. It's um, an honor to discuss my research so far with uh, my fellow panel members and the audience. And this presentation will be based um, on my PhD research um, so far. So I'm in my third year, so um, comments and questions very much welcome at the end. Um, And I seek to answer uh, the following question. Is there a rule of law crisis in Latvia and Lithuania? So um, to do this, um, I first of all set out um, to analyze the existing literature and establish what is the democratic uh, slash rule of law backsliding playbook um, emerging from what we know has happened in Poland and Hungary so far. And um, the literature says that these four broad steps um, are common to Poland and Hungary. Um, So first of all, uh, populist forces tend to emerge from a backdrop of a political party system in crisis. Um, Normally due to um, an ongoing economic crisis, brought up, brought about by the financial crisis of 2008 um, and the ensuing um, inequality, unemployment and immigration that comes along with it. So we saw this in Hungary. Fidesz had a very easy rise to power because the Socialist Party that had governed eight years previous to 2010 had made a mess of the um, Hungarian economy and they were um, They had become infamous for scandals. Um, And then once uh, a populist force gets into power, they tend to exert uh, dominance over the judiciary, in particular um, trying to restrict courts that um, have the power of constitutional review. Um, And of course we saw this happen in Poland, how swiftly the constitutional tribunal was infiltrated, uh, disarmed, and packed by the PAS government. Um, And now it stands as a rubber stamp on PAS's um, government policies. Um, And also simultaneously, um, authoritarian populist governments um, tend to want to stamp out any independent sources of criticism. So that also includes implementing muzzle laws on the media and free speech, and also um, on academic freedom. So we saw um, Professor Sadurski in Poland get dragged through uh, the courts for his opinions on what is happening um, to uh, Polish democracy and the rule of law there. And also, um, as Victor mentioned, uh, Lexiu in Hungary, which attempted to push out the Central European University. And then um, there's also changes to electoral laws. And once we see this happen, it's kind of like the final nail in the coffin of democracy. Uh, Once the playing field is forever tilted in favor of an incumbent government, it's very difficult to get them out. So that is a sure sign that something is very much wrong. I would see um, number four as the final nail in the coffin of democracy, but uh, number two, once once you see populist governments tampering with judicial independence, I think that's often cited as a canary in the coal mine situation. So that's when you know you need to look at what is happening in an individual country and um, is there a rule of law crisis on the way. Um, so knowing this, and I know I went through that very quickly, but um, I'm sure um, most of us are very uh, well acquainted with um, the playbook of democratic backsliding. Um, knowing the playbook, then I set out on um, a fact finding mission on Lithuania and I found um, a few really interesting things, um, uh, just some of which I'm going to mention today. So, first of all, uh, Lithuania has a very fragmented political party system with very weakly institutionalized political parties. Uh, so, you, you see a very clear punishing voting pattern emerging and also um, Populism is um, a key feature of almost all mainstream and new political political parties in Lithuania. And that has always been the case. So voters are very much desensitized to populist rhetoric and how that could be problematic. Um, And interestingly, um, LPGU, um, the Lithuanian Peasants and Greens Union, sometimes called the uh, Lithuanian Farmers and Greens Union, um, they received the highest majority in the 2016 um, election. They received 54 seats out of 141 in the Lithuanian Parliament, and just to know that's quite a, quite an achievement because no um, one no one political party had received more than 40 seats since 1996, and they were responsible for a number of really problematic assaults on um, the judiciary and uh, media freedom. Um, probably most problematically and most notably, um, they put an immense amount of pressure on the constitutional courts and the constitutional court president in Lithuania. And this sort of unfolded, um, between 2020 and 2021. So, um, in March 2020, um, three uh, constitutional court vacancies arose. Um, Just for context, the Lithuanian constitution states that nine judges need to be seated on the constitutional court bench at all times, a third of which has to be replaced every three years. So um, in March, 2020, um, three nominees were proposed to the um, LPGU um, majority, um, run Samos, and, um, they outright rejected them. Um, and they used various excuses like the pandemic, or the three proposed judges were not competent for the role, um, which most constitutional scholars in Lithuania um, agree it was just a facade for what was actually happening. Um, they were very much trying to pressure the constitutional court um, to um, put pressure on them um to give favorable um, decisions um because there were, some sensitive cases coming up on the constitutional court list just in a few months' time. Um, And then very soon after, in June 2020, um, the LPGU-led government also issued an unprecedented uh, smear campaign against the constitutional court president. And this was as a direct result to um, uh, a very inconvenient decision um, issued by uh, the constitutional court in summer 2020. Um, which basically ruled that um, a temporary commission of inquiry set up by the uh, justice uh, minister in Lithuania was unconstitutional because they sought to um, question political decision making by individuals and institutions over the last eight years. And the constitutional court said that that was way too wide of a scope um, to uh, warrant it being legal. Um, And this, was um, received very badly by LPGU, um, so much so that they uh, only a few days later issued to the media statement saying that the constitutional court president was colluding with the opposition, um, that he was uh, meeting with them behind everyone's back and um, discussing upcoming cases on the court list. And they said they had proof of this. Now that proof was never published. Um, and when they were questioned about it, they had nothing to hand to prove this. And the president of the court very much um, said that this was untrue. Um, and just to note, the delay in replacement of the three judges. Um, what eventually had happened um, was that the the constitutional court president um, was replaced a year and two months after when he should have been because of this um, a squabble and deadlock in the parliament over um, his re-election. Um, and this has never happened in Lithuanian constitutional history and it had um, very much big consequences for the constitutional court and its efficiency and procedure. Um, and also um, there was issues with uh, the freedom of media and speech in Lithuania. So throughout the four years LPG were in government, they issued a slew of attacks um, against media freedom, um, attempted attacks. Um, they. The opposition um, and the Lithuanian president and journalists, um, through a lot of effort, managed to uh, dampen the damage. But both in 2016 and 2019, um, the LPGU government attempted to push through legislation um, that would forbid um, and censor um, criticism of any politician or even um, any speech that would harm the reputation uh, of Lithuania's history, um, established history, um, and also um, from two thousand eighteen to um, all the way up to twenty twenty, there was um, a battle um, to preserve the independence of the national broadcaster of Lithuania, LRT. Um, so uh, the the LPGU Parliament um, decided that uh, they that they, they needed to pack the, um, the national broadcaster. And um, what they did was they set up a temporary commission um, to investigate the national broadcaster and they issued some recommendations. Those recommendations were that um, a parallel body to the National Broadcasting Council, be, which was um, independent, needed to be set up. Um, and this council would be, parallel council would be packed with um, politicians they also wanted to uh, rejuggle the composition of the National Broadcasting Council um, and uh, change the way um, members of the board were elected, um, and they attempted to uh, pass very vari- various uh, laws on the national broadcaster at least three or four times, um, and. Uh, so much so that the opposition um, were rightfully quite frightened about this. They lodged a complaint to the constitutional court and the LPGU-led parliament decided that um, this isn't really working out. So they tried to push through the legislation um, as fast as possible before the constitutional court had a chance to rule on it. Um, ultimately, um, legislation did pass in 2020. However, it was a much more diminished form of the legislation. Um, so. Um, through the hard work of journalists and civil society and also the uh, president of Lithuania, um, the, the, the damage wasn't as severe, but um, the, you can see that the sheer um, pressure on media exerted by LPGU was um, quite significant. Um, So, I'm in the middle of um, doing my research on Latvia at the moment and I'm already finding some very interesting um, things as well. Um, So to note, uh, Latvia also has um, a very fragmented uh, political party system, a voter turnout in the last general election, the 2018 election was at an all-time low um, at 55% and there's various deeply entrenched reasons for this. uh, mostly because the Russian minority in um, in Latvia is uh, very much oppressed, and they've never really been involved in political decision making. And probably the best um, the the best example of this is uh, that the Harmony Party in Latvia consistently, since two thousand and nine, have been getting the largest um, amount of votes every single general election, but they have never been um, part of the governing coalition. They were always pushed out to the. Um, to the opposition, sorry. So they were never involved in uh, the coalition and this has alienated the Russian minority in Latvia. They feel disenfranchised. They don't want to vote because they they don't feel their vote really counts for anything anymore. Um, And also on the 2018 election, um, it was very much touted as a win for populist forces in Latvia. Uh, it started off with a governing uh, coalition of five parties. Um, Only recently it uh, dropped down to four because KPVLB were pushed out as the weak link. Um, But at least two of those um, parties involved in the coalition um, government um, are widely cited to be um, right-wing populists, and they have been very successful. Um, So even during the past um, year, uh, there have um, already been attacks in the constitutional court that are very evident. Um, The Latvian constitutional court issued a really important decision on the same sex rights um, of couples. Um, This was in November, 2020. And this uh, decision was received very well by the LGBTQ plus community. However, um, the, the conservative faction of the ASEMA uh, very much disagreed with this judgment, and um, not only uh, did they question the judgment on its merits in parliamentary debates, but they very much attacked the very premise of a constitutional court. Um, so we had um, members of the National Alliance Governing Party, um, also KPVLV, and a number of um, individual um, uh, par- parliamentarians that are not even affiliated to any particular party um, saying that the constitutional court has been too politicized um, and that it has no legal standing in um, Latvia which, which is quite a claim and it stems from the fact that they were saying the 1922 original constitution um, the constitutional court didn't exist it was inserted in um, And it was inserted in the 1990s um, because of the need to democratize and accede to the EU. So they're very much pushing back against the constitutional court and questioning the very legitimacy of its existence and even proposing to abolish it and transfer the powers to the Supreme Court. Um, So I'm not uh, I know I'm going to run out of time. So uh, just to note, um, I found this very interesting. Um, The uh, pa- the parliament in Latvia is also delaying um, the nominations of judges to the constitutional court um, and this uh, is seems to be sort of a trend uh, between Lithuania and Latvia and uh, the Latvian parliament were very explicit o- on why uh, during the parliamentary debate um, where they were supposed to decide whether to, um, to vote in um, a particular judge to the constitutional court they said well maybe we should be holding off on nominating any judges to the constitutional court because we're not even sure it should exist anymore, um, which um, is quite astounding, I think. Um, So knowing this, um, that's where my research stands at now. I'm trying to decide whether there is in fact a rule of law crisis in Latvia and Lithuania, um, given that we know so much about how these problems move in Poland and Hungary. Um, And I would say that there is an issue, but the problem is deciding what is this? Is it um, rule of law, backsliding, regression, rot, or fatigue, because there's many different um, ways to describe this issue and most notably how to stop it. And I'm happy to discuss all of this um, uh, during question time. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Bea, uh, for giving us this very insightful uh, presentation, zooming in on two countries, which I think have really uh, fell outside the the radar of scholars so far. So that's uh, very helpful, and we'll come back to this. But without further ado, let me move to uh, our last speaker, this uh, this opening panel, Jenny. The floor is yours.
6: Just checking that you can see my screen. Yes, we can. Brilliant. I, I love how we have to open this, uh, open open all our presentations but "Can you hear me?" and "Can you see my screens?" these days. But yeah, on that note, so thank you very much, first of all, for the invitation and this opportunity to present my research thus far. I, I very much appreciate this opportunity and I'm very grateful to be amongst you today and I've already learned a lot, so thanks a lot for that. My name is Jennifer Pulicino-Orlando and I'm a PhD fellow in law at the University of Copenhagen as part of the Imagine project led by Professor Jan Kumarek. Um, I'm simultaneously reading for a second master's degree whilst doing my PhD, this time in law. My first is in politics and government of the EU Um, as part of a special program here in Copenhagen. So this has meant that the first year of my PhD, I'm currently in my second year, has very much uh, focused on my master's degree. So permit me to to present you very preliminary uh, findings. And they're not even findings, they're mostly just research at this point. So my presentation, as I just said, reflects preliminary research conducted thus far, as well as an article I am co-authoring, which is in its final stages. My presentation is thus entitled Hungary and the End of Empires, the road to realizing the constitutional self, 1989 to 2012, which encapsulates this progress. But let me start on this note. Today's Bridge Conference's uh, title and topic, a post-crisis EU, has sent my mind spinning somewhat, both in terms of my own PhD agenda, which very much focuses on pre-crisis EU, so to speak, and the way I myself see the day-to-day function of the EU um it's certainly it's certainly difficult to demarcate when the crisis we are discussing today began and perhaps in some quarters it is even difficult to make a decisive claim that the eu is now in a post crisis state for some even there is currently and was never any crisis or any crises at all so it was it is with this in mind that i offer my thoughts today focusing on one of the main protagonists of the rule of law crisis in the european union today hungary So as as many of you uh, know, Hungary has a checkered past in terms of its uh, role in European history. It embodies the paradoxes of Europe and the European Union more so than we may believe. These paradoxes animate its constitutional present as well as its political personality internally and externally. It being an outlier in the Central and Eastern European region for various reasons, it will be expanded on the next next slides, very much colored my interest in exploring Hungarian constitutionalism. For me, it's not an exaggeration to state that Hungary, as much of the region, forms part of what is often referred to as the European periphery, a sort of second Europe that exists in the space between two hegemons. Understanding Hungary then requires a keen and reflexive understanding of its history, a history that has come to life in constitutional form through its fundamental law, in my opinion. So in doing so, a post-colonial lens must be applied both to understand the paradoxes of Hungarian identity as both an imperial subject and victim, how this has impacted its constitutionalism and what it can tell us about European constitutionalism more generally. So disclaimer, my work is very conceptual and, and quite different to, to the other presentations, but I hope it's just as interesting. And I'm very grateful to be allowed the space to, in the spirit of the Imagine Project, if you're familiar with our work, reimagine what the European constitutional imaginary is and what it could be. So I'm currently pursuing the thread uh, that the gap in interacting with its self-generated other has and continues to have an immense impact on European constitutionalism. It has arguably failed in incorporating the varieties of constitutionalisms within its intellectual legacy, at best seeking to homogenize it and at worst, worst erasing it from memory altogether. So the perception of self in European constitutionalism has encouraged the continued peripheralization of the region, prioritizing and allowing certain narratives to prevail over others thus invalidating memory and identity in the CEE as not a valid part of the European narrative, or at least one that requires tempering. So the narratives of imperial exploits abroad, the the traditional, so to speak, uh, French-British models, have often prevailed in the overall narrative also of European history. We neglect then, in doing so, to see our own Orientalisms here in Europe that that have had a vastly impressive impact on the dynamics of law, politics, and history. In my opinion, and what my research is trying to do, is reach a new history of the present and and describe a new history of the present, one that is decolonized. So to do this, I look at the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, specifically as a forgotten impactor in the region, but also at the Soviet Union. How these two interacted in the Hungarian case and how it served to establish and influence identity construction and in turn how these have been perceived post-1989 in the run-up to the accession to the EU is of particular interest to me. I'm currently conducting a corpus-based discourse analysis of constitutional court judgments from 1990 to 2012 in order to analyze whether narratives that ultimately feature so prominently in the fundamental law are also carried through in the case law. And seen in this light, the development of the constitutional selves in Hungary takes on a new mantle as we seek to move the narratives from the periphery into the central European constitutional imaginary. Again, a decolonized one and one that seeks to see constitutionalism as a hard won process rather than a prepackaged given. And in doing so, again, I try to make the case uh, for identity constitutionalism. And given these emergent strands, I seek to see the crisis of European constitutionalism as one that requires serious introspection. As I said earlier, I'm currently co-authoring a paper with Dr. Marina Ban on identity constitutionalism. So building on and operationalizing the constitutional identity concept, but extending it to encapsulate specific examples of historical constitutions in a manner that is both attentive to the interaction that this identity formation process has with constitutionalization in post-colonial settings, as well as the impact this has had on respective constitutionalisms. And where evident examples of mnemonic constitutionalism has emerged in the region, identity constitutionalism cannot but accompany it. Memory laws and the mnemonics of constitutionalism and constitutionalization are critical, sure, but how can they exist if we don't look at identity as well? The fundamental law in its national avowal makes its statement of self, or at least its self-perception of the self, unequivocal. It fights back against this narrative of it belonging in the space between and makes a case for belonging to the core of Europe. A strange duality were measured up against its political behavior under the current leadership. And if it sounds, Familiar In terms of populist narrative, well, it's because it is. So, as you can see in my research, the shadows of empire here have taken very, very seriously, and I believe this allows space for nuancing the current situation that does away with the repetitive stance of rule of law violations, but looks at why this could be happening through the interaction of law and history. And I, I added this slide, which is not really the focus of my research, um, also because of the the topic of today, but it, I, I feel that it does extend a little bit. So if you'll allow me more of amusing than than something i'm 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 focusing my research on, i hope I hope that you can at least it will definitely generate some uh, some discussion afterwards. So why do I think uh, extending this debate is important for the EU? And this question has definitely taken on new meaning for me in the last days with the Polish crisis that we're seeing unfold. To me this is not a theoretical discussion, nor is it one that should sit within the annals of academia. This is a discussion that has to understand that it has tremendous impact on how we imagine Europe, not just in constitutional terms but also in social and political terms. This is a discussion on how we want to collectively imagine and also reimagine the direction Europe is taking. I have felt, having engaged with the subject long before I re-entered academia, particularly during my time as a diplomat in the European Council, that the discussion neglects to ask the question why. And to me, this is a very important question. We can keep describing and researching the crisis, and we can keep researching it from the point of view that it is not entirely considerate. That is not entirely considerate, considerate of a number of variables, including and very prominently the historical ones. This narrative has ti- has a time has for a time has at times seemed very journalistic to me, and it has pandered to this old notion of two-speed Europe, even perhaps perpetuated it. Perhaps I go so far as to call it populist itself. And to be clear, that is not to say that the alarm isn't warranted. Far from it. I myself come from a country, Malta, that is deeply in crisis on this front. I am alarmed and I am angry, and I'm angry as a European citizen and as a multi-citizen. But to me, that alarm and anger requires an academic agenda that is constructive and extensively reflexive as to the question, why? Instead of exacerbating the space in between, it should seek to understand that space and divide, because there is a divide and it is not a helpful one. It is a divide that requires us to ask ourselves as academics and also as citizens of the European Union what we see the future of the Union as being. Conscious of the fact that we have never really come to a collective agreement, really, on what the EU as a project and as an imaginary was and is in the first place. That Europe is in an identity crisis is not a new strand of thinking, but it is one that requires commitment to challenge, clarify, render consistent, but also engage in meaningful self-reflection. And in terms of European constitutionalism, what my research is yielding thus far, even at its early stages, is that we are in desperate need of a decolonized narrative. Cursory extension of this research agenda into, the, into political science leads one down the same path. The rule of law discourse, discourse needs to be decolonized. It is recalled that there is a clear lack of discussion, which is slowly changing now, very slowly, on EU law and its colonial legacies. It is a fallacy that intra-European state relations are not marred by these narratives and by the historical reality of European colonialism in Europe itself. These hangovers are evident in populist narratives we see today, but also in our constitutional contracts. Hungary is a case in point. So though it is not at the core of my research and very much incidental to it to a certain extent, it is clear that trying to understand the dynamics of history, recent and otherwise, in the region yields some thought-provoking strands of interest. My argument here is not: is let's not remove history from the discussion on the rule of law. Because if we do remove history and context, we miss risking we risk missing the point. So on that very impassioned note, <laughs> um, here you can see the the main strands of the research that i that i'm I'm currently uh, I'm currently looking into. Um, and I'm pretty sure I've almost uh, run out of time. Uh, so I want to draw your your attention to these key points. But I want to end uh, on this note by saying, um, especially in the next days when the the Polish constitutional crisis uh, takes a new uh, takes on a new mantle, that we have a responsibility as academics to ask why. So so let's do that. And thanks again for listening. I look forward to your questions. Thank you
2: very much, Jenny, for this presentation and for sticking perfectly to time. And. Uh... Making sure to uh, give a very provocative, uh, I think, outline of of, of your work uh, in just thirty minutes. so we're we're grateful for that. I think I'm sure there will be questions, and if not, I might ask you a question uh, during the Q and a session that it's now to come. We have uh, twenty minutes, so that's that's really uh, I think a, a decent amount of time to have a conversation uh, about those uh, those issues. and I'm glad there's about two thousand people participating to this event. so, listen, let me play fairly my role as chair and simply look around for uh, questions from uh, from the audience because there's not that many people. Uh, whoever wants to uh, to speak, please raise your hand uh, and we will just unmute you uh, and you can ask your question in person.
3: Then may I just have a very, Victor, very, go ahead. Short, a very short reflection on Jennifer's uh, presentation, It was actually incredibly interesting and i'm really looking forward to 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 reading your your articles um but on the because i'm not a have a historian i have no uh, background in history but what i do see in hungary and i assume that this is not a hungarian thing that these governing majorities uh they abuse very often the historical rhetoric so what you so if you if you read the national avowal um and if you uh if you listen to the to the messages of the of the Hungarian government, uh just just try to be as skeptical as you as you possibly can with their rhetoric because uh they they use this this language, but honestly, they they probably couldn't care less. About, about history, about the historical truth, they they reinvent history very often. They reinterpret history very often, which may be true that they are that this this attitude is fueled by history. Uh, but 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 even even Hungarian history historians criticize very very often this uh, this rhetoric of the Hungarian government. They de- establish uh, research institutions just in order to to uh, publish papers uh, which actually justify the rhetoric of the government but but uh, decent historians do not support the the narrative of the of the Hungarian government.
2: Thanks Victor that was a very good question I think Jennifer you you want to answer that.
6: Sure. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm not sure if it was a question or a statement. It's a very pertinent statement. And in terms of a question, if I had to formulate one for myself, it's something that I'm consistently asking myself. The the person I'm co-authoring uh, my paper with on uh, on the legacies of colonialism in Hungary is in fact a historian. So we were looking at documentation to see how and and to to. to to try and measure the process of how this kind of historical constitution has adopted and kind of snowballed into a narrative in, in and of itself, I completely agree. And obviously, of course, we see that this is total rhetoric. This is this is um, its opacity is, is 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 meant to be backed by history, but at the same time, it's uh, it can be empty words. But the thing is that whether it's empty words or not is kind of irrelevant because they're using it very prominently and very very successfully, might I add. To back um, to back their narratives and their actions domestically and and abroad, and I understand why. Uh, I understand why you you see it as something that is hollow because we see this as we see rhetoric as something we can dispose of very quickly. It's just rhetoric. Let's push it aside. But I think there's a little bit more to it. Um, and. Uh, I, I always bring up this example from the National Avowal, and, I, and I, I try to read it to myself. I think I even have it on my desk at university, where it says that we are proud that our nation has over the centuries defended Europe in a series of struggles and enrich, enriched Europe's common values with its talent and diligence. And this is very much how it perceives its role in the EU. We see this time and time again in council. We see this time and time again now, and it's very much—it's almost leadership of the Visegrad Four within council formations. And even though it is rhetorical, even though it is empty, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a tool, and it's not a tool—not uh, and that it's not a useful tool for the EU to see where this is coming from politically. And I think to a certain extent, the same is the case very much in Poland. I'm not engaging in a comparative, but we are also focusing on Poland within our project and the same exact tools uh, are being used. So the role of my research and what I hope to achieve with it is to unpick this rhetoric and see what is useful of it and, and, and why. Um, it can be used by the European Union to try and challenge and, and again undermine mm-hmm. undermine the populism, and that is the whole point for me, because if we understand why, and there is there are reasons, we cannot just brush aside the fact that it's been uh, that that Hungary has been uh, pushed to the periphery, whilst at the same time having these sort of grand visions, uh, rightly so, of it being a formative part of the Europe of of Europe and its and its formation. Um, and these need to be taken seriously because they aren't very much taken seriously in European constitutionalism in, in Western states or in, in other states. And they are very much taken seriously in uh, in the dynamics of politics in the EU. They may not be spoken of, but they're definitely taken seriously.
2: If I can just follow up, Jenny, and I mean, you just give a very interesting uh, answer to, to Victor's uh, question. But a question I would have myself and uh, is, I mean, how can you avoid... Um, having your research being instrumentalized by the governments uh, of the likes of Hungary, uh, who constantly say every time the European Union is, or the institutions are criticizing their action, oh, this is just post-colonialism. So uh, isn't there a risk that in fact, you end up endorsing that rhetoric uh, whereas to me, there's nothing post-colonial in what Brussels is doing against the Polish government or or the Hungarian government on uh, on rule of law. I, I and I can say this proudly because I, I I come from a city that used to be part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire until 100 years ago. Uh, so in a sense, uh, the, the the colonized uh, well, Hungary was a a, a a colonizing power for for a, a lot of of the regions of, of Central Europe. So I'm putting that as a joke, but in a sense, you see what I'm trying to say. There is, I think, a instrumentalized rhetoric being used to push back against, uh, against pressure from Brussels. And if I can just build a bridge between what you said and the presentation that Niels was saying, uh, those who know about United States history uh, will find amazing sort of uh, uh, ring belts there, uh, because the Southern state in the United States, which had no rule of law tradition, if you will, I mean, there were slave holding states, have developed this myth of being colonized by the North. So the the, the lost cause, the uh, heritage of the Confederacy, is all about how we were uh, unduly uh, forced by these unruly northern powers to uh, to give up on our traditions. Uh, and and there is something similar. Think of Texas, the Lone Star State. We fought for uh, the freedom of the United States against the Mexican invasion and, and so on. So there, it, it's actually remarkable how you have similar types of rhetorical instrument being used uh, by uh, you know countries which are not really uh, performing well on the rule of law side uh, to uh, to defend themselves. But listen, maybe before you reply that, I see Calypso uh, raising her hand. Hi,
7: Calypso, thanks for being with us this morning uh, uh, and for, for stepping in. Uh, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks, Federico. Nice to see you and everyone who's doing fascinating work. And um, uh, indeed, I... I you know vibrate to all your presentation just published a little book on the a citizen's guide to the rule of law and in fact that's um, I, I have a couple of questions but um, one of them is you know to the extent that all of your studies are both analytical but at the end of the day prescriptive whether it's in the thesis conclusion or in the motivation initially or or has a bigger part to play um, there is a, a place for prescription and what what is to be done, obviously. And uh, my be in my bonnet these days is very much that the rule of law is like oxygen, you you only feel it in the breach, and that a citizen-centric defense of rule of law has to be about the ownership of rule of law defense by citizens. Um, so one question is when you combine uh so so what What are the pathways where we, we lead um, to reform, to kind of defend the rule of law, defend X, whatever it is, uh, through, you know, social movement? And of course, we see this in all of the countries that you've, you know, talked about from Hungary to the Baltic states and, uh, and uh, sadly enough, not enough in Western Europe where the rule of law is itself uh, very attacked. But of course, the story of the United States, there... We always have movements and counter movements, but this, this question of social ownership of rule of law defense to me is very important. At least that's the case I've been trying to make. And I was wondering how all your thesis are kind of addressing this, taking it into account. And then we come to kind of contrasting the first two, uh, you know, um, a presentation and Victor and Beatrice versus Jennifer in some ways. Um, so a kind of hardcore anal- analysis of, yes, the rule of law playbook, and we really need to understand this playbook from, from coal in the mine to to entrenchment of backsliding. And so it's really useful to understand these steps. I think Jennifer is telling us that, you know, maybe everybody doing rule of law, and we're kind of this huge community of people doing a, the rule of law now, needs to really care about the underlying narrative. Um, and, and not as just as scholars, we will have a dispute about history. And that's where my little pushback on Victor, you know, echoing Jennifer, um, because of course, history has infinite amount of material. There is no truth of the matter in history, it doesn't exist. We know that. We know about all the memory wars and, and all of that. And it will always be thus there will never be a settlement about the truth because the truth is everywhere. Everything happened, everything. So so we need to kind of understand how history is appropriated. And we can't just say manipulated because that's already pointing the finger to one side and saying, well, you know, if you celebrate this battle, you're manipulating. And, you know, I've done a lot of work on the Balkans. We know this. (laughs) So, So the question, but if we want to, you know, if our prescriptive normative aim is to entrench the rule of law in in what's good about the rule of law, (laughs) um, which is that it's always against um, arbitrary power from wherever it comes from. And that's the most important thing in our lives, not to be subject to an arbitrary power. And so we want to entrench the rule of law. We need to speak to these narratives because, you know, the story that you all tell about Um, not Jennifer, but the others, you know, at the end of the day, we need to ask about buy-in. And yeah, you know, Polish people understand that, ooh, you know, we're playing with fire, we want to stay in the EU, 80% of them, but they still support the government. And the same in Hungary, and partially, but I I don't, I know much less about the Baltic states, I'd like to hear about it. But there has to be something in the narrative that people buy. And not because they're stupid or misinformed or they didn't know do history at school you know that's too easy for us jennifer is telling us you know what is that narrative and there is some really interesting and that i'm transforming this mini statement of mine into a kind of question now a what is the pregnant narrative that allow governments to do these really bad silly things from our viewpoint Uh, And people are not stupid. You know, why do they support it? And interestingly, in Jennifer's story, you've got this mix of the the two sides, the story of subjugation and the story of self of of imperial, you know, grandeur and defending the gates of Europe or whatever it is. So it's a double misrecognition um, and, and double echoes. Because, I mean, and and Federico, I mean, I totally see your feedback, pushback that this is not imposition from Brussels. Sure, it's rule of law. I mean, it's law. And so it's not imposition in that sense. It's rules that all states have signed up to and treaties. But we know that all of this has to be interpreted. And, you know, I'm half Greek. So, I, you know, I think that story of, of colonial Brussels, you know, cannot just be dismissed in the name of treaties. At least if you care about how, you know, voters think and citizens think. Um, So there is this echo and we just need to confront it. And history is a great material on all sides. So partially if so to me, if we're thinking about counter narratives, because whenever we think of narrative, we think of counter narrative. And I'm all the way back to my uh, prescriptive side. I'm not sure we can simply push back and say, oh, that's bad. And you're just taking a, you know, this history is wrong or you exploit history, this has nothing to do with history. No, I mean, to me, the counter narrative has to to, um, include the narrative that Jennifer is talking about. It has to to take it in and be a multivocal narrative saying, you know, our history is a mess. All these things happen. We played all of these roles. We are the periphery of Europe, by the way, but we'd like to kind of be respected for it um it's it's beautiful to be at the periphery and i'm talking to a maltese um, from a greek so (laughs) um but um let's celebrate this period this this being in the limes um but let's celebrate this history and ask europe and all our, our other europeans to celebrate all of our to recognize mutually recognize all of our history i have much more to say but I just wanted to kind of make this comment because I wasn't going to make a comment. I was just going to listen in, uh, but um, I was just moved to to do this and to applaud all of your studies and encourage you to take both sides, the analytical and the historical. Asking you basically as a question, both you know, to the first two papers, how you take in narratives, and to Jennifer, you know, at the end of the day. How do you think about this? Do you agree about the counter-narrative? How, how would you yourself think about it? I know you're not there yet, but at this stage. Thanks, Calypso, for jumping in and, and for this insightful comment from Florence, I presume.
2: Uh, so I, I guess I'll just turn the floor back to uh, to our panelists. Maybe Victor, you, you wanna reply to this uh, as well?
3: um just very briefly uh, so actually my phd dissertation is not about this uh, i have a, i have a slightly different topic but this is this is somehow related to 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 my phd my phd is about the the, the constitutional review of the legislative process when when um, cases are litigated at the constitutional court because the enactment process itself violated the constitution and not because the law is substantively unconstitutional. Uh, and and the the central argument of my of my topic or of my, my thesis is that conceptualizing these procedural irregularities as nothing but uh, formal violations or, or uh technical violations of the rule of law is a simply misconceptualization. And, and I argue that these are actually very essential problems, because these procedural irregularities usually happen when, when political actors participating in the legislative process, they, they cannot solve their conflicts, they cannot solve their problems, so that's why they actually violate the rules of the, of the process. Uh, but as to the historical narrative, I have no background in history, so I do not really want to reflect on that. But... Let me just let me just uh, point out that it is a very um, it's actually very misleading, I think, to say that in these countries such as Poland or Hungary there is a massive electoral support behind the government. Yes, the governing majority has a two thirds majority in parliament, but as it as it was as it was rightly pointed out by Batrice, one of the liberal toolkit is to manipulate the elections from the very beginning. So that's one of that's step two or step three, and this is what happened in in Hungary as well, so actually now the the governing majority has two-thirds majority in parliament with only 49% of the popular vote. So even the the majority of the country didn't vote for the government, but they still have a two-thirds majority. Uh, And and so the election results can be a little bit misleading and and the number of the mandates in the parliament can be a little bit misleading. Um, And as to this colonial um, aspect of of interpreting the relationship between Hungary and the European Union, I think that the economic aspect is a little bit more pertinent or a little bit more sounds better with Hungarian people, that kind of European rhetoric that Western European states are the rich, the net contributors, and we are the beggars of the European Union. And we should be grateful for all the money that we get from the European Union, if something, then this hurts the feelings of the Hungarians and regardless of their political affiliation, partly because it is simply not true and partly because it is very offensive. So if, if we try to find, I think that if we try to find this colonial aspect, then we may find it in the economic, the discussions about the financial and economic um, aspects of, of European integration. Thank you.
2: Thank you Victor. I don't know if either Niels or Beatrice want to also jump in they were marginally called into to play
5: Um, Yeah, I can quickly comment on um, the historical narrative. I think from my own side, and and I alluded to it um, in my presentation, in Latvia in particular, there's um, quite um, a distinct pushback from um, right wing parties against um, the EU. Um, A lot of antagonism and bad feeling about um, the accession to the EU and the fact that it didn't lead to prosperity as promised. It led to economic ruin in Latvia in particular, um, emigration, and a real fear emerging that uh, the population in Latvia is falling and a fear that like their culture will disappear eventually. Um, so, we have um, the National Alliance Party in Latvia promoting um, birth rates um, and giving out cash handouts to families with larger um, amounts of children. Um, so Yeah, I think there is very much a pushback against um, the EU, but like Victor said, um, it has a lot to do with um, how these countries feel very proud to be Latvian or Lithuanian, and sometimes they feel spoken down to by the EU in various
2: economic policies. Thanks, Bea. And of course there is the issue of the Russian minority where you have a different problem of colonialism playing out, uh, I think, in, in the Baltic states. I'll, I'll hand it to to Jenny.
6: Thank you. And um, so, I, I'm first of all, thank you very much, um, uh, Professor uh, Calypso Nicolides, for your uh, for your defence of my of my research. Sometimes I feel a little bit um, a little bit alone in in the path that I'm taking. Um, but I'm glad to see that there is a bit of a, of a of a growing interest in colonialism in in this regard, and also in putting history uh, to the fore. I, I, I don't know if I mentioned at the beginning of my of my presentation, but I am, too, not a historian. I'm a political science by training and, and a lawyer. So I, I, I am trying very much to take this 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 view. And I think it's very important. So I the, one of the reasons why I, I, I chose to to participate in this project and why I chose Hungary is because um, very simply, when I was in the European Council, I, I witnessed how these how this rhetoric is used in negotiations and we think that we think that they're not used um, perhaps domestically i'm i believe victor 100% that, that 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 a lot of people consider this to be empty rhetoric but after there is a negotiations the hungarians and the poles you know they come up to the the rest of us periphery states and they say see these big states they all they want to do is dictate to us all they have all they have to say is what we have to do we have no say in the matter we have no say in this engagement and whether that is true or not, I think is a is is a moot point, but it it does require, in my in my opinion, especially because I'm particularly traumatized by Brexit, uh, listening to, I think it is important, uh, in terms of uh, of bringing people uh, to buy into to buy into uh, because people are buying into it. There's there's no discussion about that. So in terms of you asked the question what about the counter narrative what what would happen if uh, i think that was the common question between you and, and professor fabrini uh, what is the counter narrative what would happen if my my research were appropriated and and for me the counter question is what happens if we don't engage in this in this path what happens if what what if for argument's sake uh, obviously I'm not going to be completely right, but what if for argument's sake, this is an important strand that needs to be unpicked? What if if we do unpick it? Because as we can see in all the other presentations, this comes out of a popular kind of uh, fatigue for neoliberalism. Um, it's some have shorter histories than others, but what if what if we unpick that fatigue and try to, to incorporate these sentiments into the central European uh, belief system What if we're successful at that? Because evidently we're not very successful in bringing bringing these countries um, into a Central European narrative and into, in my case, into constitutionalism because we're continuously enforcing this kind of imitation imperative on them. We have to imitate the bigger states. It's evidently not working. So for better or for worse, I'm going to attempt to ask um, different questions, and and I'm, I'm going to try to go down that path without having a history degree, but being uh, very fanatically, <laughs> very fanatically involved and engaged in the history of uh, particularly Hungary. Um, and and Victor, you you mentioned economic aspects. Um, what is very interesting that at the turn of the century around well rather than turn of the century after the first world war there was this economic uh, imperialism imposed on on Hungary after it fragmented um, in order to f- uh, pull apart uh, Hungary after the after world war 1 and I'm not going to go too much detail into this. They made the economic aspect that the Hungarian nation was actually failing economically, and therefore needed to be taken apart in order to succeed. So this kind of economic imperialism was also happening even uh, even after, before the four, well, during the formation of the League of Nations, but also after World War One. And these traits they may not be they may not be remembered uh, so fervently. Of, of course not, but they do run these strands do run through the narratives. Of uh, of this kind of lesser European feel that that a lot of our countries Malta um, Lithuania Latvia this, the newer accession states are feeling, and this feeling of being a lesser European comes up time and time again. And I, I and I want to I want to challenge that. So I, I hope I'm making sense, and I hope I haven't missed anything. But I have so many notes, um, I can go on forever. But I hope that we can continue the discussion.
2: And what we hope is that this conversation will help you also advance on, on that line of research. I think it's
6: absolutely. It's it really, really is. Um, I can show you the paper right now. It looks uh,
2: great. Like a well, of course, Calypso has done work on post-colonialism. So I, I think I can highly recommend you to read her uh, on, on that front, too. And, and, and this is certainly a topic worth discussing farther because from a Western European perspective,
6: Absolutely, absolutely. It's a very no.
2: different take uh, on this. Absolutely. Uh, but to, one
6: thing I do want to add, you mentioned the US and also uh, in Nils' case, um, the, the, for, the 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 kind of playbook that, that, um, that we are using, that I am using in particular, also comes from uh, these ideas that emerge from the US and also obviously from other mostly commonwealth, actually, uh, countries and how they've developed their constitution successfully or otherwise. So there is very much a link. I mean, to in order to read this, because there isn't as much as much as I'd like about post-colonialism, of European narratives in Europe from European empires, um, I've had to resort to to a lot of uh, to literature from the United States and also about, uh, especially Commonwealth, which are useful for me as a as of a. Course. I think Malta,
2: former colony of, of the UK. So <laughs> listen, I'm conscious of time. Uh, We're running already late, but I want to give the floor to Niels because I understand he had a final uh, query uh, or question or point he wanted to make. So Niels.
4: Can you um, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, yeah, so <laughs> um, yeah, it's just a very quick follow up to uh, Victor's presentation, which I also really enjoyed. And um, I found it really interesting that you put uh, the procedural dimension of the rule of law uh, into the f- focal point, which is equally important in the substantial dimension. I was just wondering, abusing uh, your knowledge as an expert in the Hungary- in the current Hungarian political situation, do you think we could see um, a similar development what we have just seen in Poland in the way that the Hungarian constitutional court would kind of declare EU law unapplicable in Hungary? Or why, why is this... Um, or why is it not happening? So maybe this would be interesting. It's some very some a very practical question, but I would be interested to
3: hear your opinion. Uh, thank you for the question. Um, it's not easy to give you an objective answer because I have many friends who either do work or used to work in the Constitutional Court, so I know more or less how these these cases were actually decided and by whom and with whose contribution and stuff. But um, so I think that if we look at the big picture. Um, the, the Hungarian Constitutional Court is definitely captured in the sense that the that the Hungarian government wanted to make sure that those people who are now members of the Constitutional Court will be not uh, will not try to block the the measures of the of the Hungarian government, but they are not as um, obviously manifestly and 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 uh, yeah evidently loyal to the government as the members of the Polish Constitutional Court. So I think that the Hungarian government was a little bit smarter on, on, on in this, also because it had more time probably to implement its, its program. Um, so I think that in these cases, what the Hungarian Constitutional Court is trying to do is trying to please the government. Uh, but I don't think that the Hungarian Constitutional Court would be ready uh, at this moment to deliver a decision similar to the Polish one. I do not really think that at this point right now with this composition. But let me just tell you that when I was talking about the administrative court reform, part of the reform was that it opened the way from the constitutional court to the judiciary. So if members of the constitutional court want to get appointed as judges of the supreme court they have every right to do that and from one day to the next they can leave and and go to the supreme court which means that the hungarian governing majority will have the chance to elect basically if they really want the whole uh, membership of the constitutional court and pack it with new people who actually may be more loyal to the government so we cannot exclude this possibility but i think that we the current composition of the Constitutional Court, and if I understand correctly the current logic of, of the operation of the Constitutional Court, I don't think it would be likely that the that the Hungarian court would deliver a similar judgment.
2: Even though to some extent it already has no in the asylum and, and the relocation decision case
3: of, of it said uh, it said that in certain circumstances, we, we can argue that Hungarian law is higher to European Union law, but there was a very sin- significant thing which, which is missing from this judgment. Who has the right to decide? Because it is the consistent case law of the Hungarian Constitutional Court that the court itself has absolutely no competence to review the constitutionality of EU law. It said that, yes, in certain circumstances, these tests and that test and blah, 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 Uh, EU law can violate Hungarian constitutional law, but it didn't answer the question, who has the right to decide? So
2: lots of questions. Uh, We got some answers. Uh, More has to be done. Uh, I think we really need to close now uh, this panel, but it has been fascinating. Uh, It was a great pleasure for me to chair uh, such an international uh, and also really interdisciplinary panel uh, uh, with, four speakers from three of our uh, bridge uh, institutions. So I would like to ask everyone to uh, join me in giving a hand to uh, Victor Kazai, Nils Kirst, Beatrice Montuskaite, uh, and Jenny Pulicino-Orlando for uh, for great presentation and, and a great uh, discussion.
0: The Post-Brexit Europe podcast is a product of The Bridge Network, which is a Jean Monnet network funded by the European Union's Erasmus Plus program. It is recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute. André Wulgar is the producer. My name is Ian Cooper. Thank you for listening.